Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about happiness and social capital. We have a guest with us, Jeremy Jackson. He's an associate professor in the Department of Agribusiness and Applied Economics at North Dakota State University, and he's the director of the North Dakota Center for the Study of Public Choice and Private Enterprise. He teaches courses in microeconomics, game theory and strategy, and public economics. His research has been published in journals such as Public Choice, Applied Economics, Contemporary Economic Policy, and the Journal of Happiness Studies. Most recently, his research has come to focus on social impacts of economic freedom. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, give us a little bit of your background. How did you get into economics? And then you can kind of lead that into how did you get into the happiness studies and social cap- and, and studying social capital, the things that you're into? Sure. And and you basically just gave me an invitation to tell my whole life story. Excellent. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll go back pretty far. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma. And really, when I went away to college, I, I had a strong desire to get out of the state of Oklahoma and experience things new. I went to Baylor University, which um, was in, is in Waco, Texas. And I actually went to Baylor thinking that I was going to study entrepreneurship. Um, they had a very good, actually one of the first entrepreneurship programs um, at the university level. But I got there and, you know, a lot of freshmen, as, as we all know, tend to wonder and think about life and what they want to do. I actually contemplated going to medical school for a very short period of time. Um, my father was a physician and I grew up telling myself that I would not be a physician. But for some reason, for that one semester in college, I thought I might actually do it. Um, but chemistry just wasn't for me. And... I had found my way into, of course, some business classes um, because of my interest in entrepreneurship. And, and I, I actually found that I hated almost every single one of my business classes, except, mm. for, except for my economics classes. I really loved the economic way of thinking. I liked the systematic way that we talked about um, how people operate and the influence of, of people on the world around them and on policy issues. So I actually ended up changing majors to be an economics major, had to explain to my parents how this was going to affect my future career path. <laughs> all those, all how those will you provide things. for your family if you just study numbers? <laughs> right. And then I, I had to do this again, actually, because I had to tell them, by the way, not only do I really want to study economics for my major, I think I'm going to go to graduate school. Mm. Um, and so there was a bit of a hard sell. Um, although I told them, by the way, I think that I think that I'm going to be able to get graduate school paid for, and they're like, good, because we're certainly not going to pay for you to get a graduate a graduate degree in economics. 
So I, I, I went and applied to a large number of schools. I was very lucky in that I was able to get into my school of top choice, which was Washington University in St. Louis. I actually went there thinking that I was going to study macroeconomics and that I was going to be God's gift to monetary policy. I thought that I would be able to change the world and make the world a better place through appropriate policies in the Federal Reserve System, etc. But I came to graduate school and found that, well, macroeconomics at the graduate level was nothing like what I had been taught at the undergraduate level. And in fact, um, I came to a bit of I wouldn't call it an intellectual crisis, <laughs> but kind of like an intellectual crisis um, where I found there to be many competing macroeconomic theories that all seemed plausible and, in fact, all have supporting evidence, yet cannot possibly all be true necessarily and have very different policy implications. So this is, you know, I actually came and I, I still kind of make this, this as a, as a little bit of a joke, but I, I, I now describe myself as a macroeconomic agnostic. Hmm. Um, I acknowledge that it exists, but I, I view it as unknowable. So in graduate school, I, I, I got into microeconomics um, and I actually studied predominantly microeconomic theory, um, which means I, I did lots and lots of math. At Washington University in St. Louis, one of the, the traditions um, that they've been famous for is, is for the fields of, I can call it public choice or political economy, but mm -hmm. also for, for new institutional um, economics. And those influences have been a big part of my own intellectual life and thinking about economics. My, my main fields um, are really in what I would call political economy and or public choice, um, which is really at the intersection of economics and political science. Right, yeah. Um, and I, I apply mostly game theory, or I had applied mostly game theory. Um, and actually, it's, it's partly in my teaching of game theory where one of the predominant themes is how can these individuals in, I would say, say like a classic, we call this the prisoner's dilemma situation, where individuals have no incentive to cooperate with one another. You and your fellow captive, um, you know, you're, you're criminals, you just robbed a bank, uh, but now you're both held captive by the police and they're, they're, they're essentially putting you each in a separate room to talk to you and try to, to get you to confess and think on your, your partner in crime. Um, you would like to both not confess, right? You're going to get the, the lightest jail sentence if neither of you confesses. But if you confess, you get to make a deal and get a lighter sentence. And the incentives of this prisoner's dilemma are such that it's actually in the individual interest of both players in this game to confess, um, even though they could be better off by not confessing. As in they, they could each be, be they would both be better off if both did not confess. Correct. Correct. But the, the individual incentives of that scenario don't allow them to cooperate. Um, so one of the major themes in my game theory class is how can people cooperate? What are the things that could help people in these types of scenarios? Because the prisoner's dilemma pops up 
in an enormous number of I mean, the same type of a of a of a game um, pops up in a number of of types of interactions yeah. that people find them in, um, and so there's that 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 issue of cooperation was a big part of my teaching and actually began to be a much bigger part um, of of some of my research program as well. Um, I got into the study of happiness. Um, which happiness is kind of a bad word to use. The word well-being is probably a more appropriate word, but happiness is sexier. <laughs> well, anyways, I got into that research actually through interactions that I had with my wife. Um, she's an advertising professor. When we first met, she didn't probably think we had any overlap in interests because she thought that I probably studied finance and mm -hmm and banking. But, you know, as we were getting to know each other, she came to realize that economics, as I study economics, is actually about people and mm -hmm. studying people. And advertising is also about people. So we ended up having a lot of things in common. Yeah. And she had been reading some pa some books about happiness, um, which led us into some topics of just talking between us about the nature of happiness. And I worked with several of actually graduate students in the communication department, which is her department, um, on some topics that dealt with with student satisfaction and trying to measure satisfaction, which in a roundabout way led me into the research on, on happiness and empirical, empirical studies of happiness and well-being. So it's kind of a, a roundabout way um, to get there. Art, I know that you, you, have, you know Dr. Art Cardin. Um, we yeah. actually, we went to graduate school together. So we, we met, you know, in 2001 as, as brand new PhD students at Washington University in St. Louis. And, and we've been friends um, since the beginning there. We both have some things in common in terms of a love for liberty, but we're also, we were also Christians. Um, so, so we were, we were, you know, we had a pretty strong bond, um, but we had always talked about wanting to do some research together. Yeah. Um, and it never really came to fruition until we finally just sit down and say, Hey, we, we, we really need to do something together. Let's look at a topic. And we, you know, through some of my reading on, on well-being and whatnot, and, and art had already done some research on social capital. Mm-hmm. And we both have an interest in in institutions and thinking about institutions. We decided that we would write a paper that looked at economic freedom, which from our perspective is a measurement of institutions, um, looking at the impact of economic freedom on the production of social capital, which social capital, and I think that's why these, these two topics of social capital and happiness um, are, you know, both topics for this podcast, um, they're, 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 they're closely related, Yeah. but that's kind of how, how I came into both the social capital research and the happiness research. You said your wife introduced you to, um, the happiness study and you actually have that in, in your free to be happy, uh, journal article, uh, essay. Yep. Uh, you have in the acknowledgements that, you know, many thanks to Elizabeth Jackson for introducing me to the scientific study of happiness. And, I actually wondered if that was some like like romantic nod to your wife, <laughs> but so that now that you said that you know it, it, it doesn't seem to be the case, although maybe that's in your own special oh, way it, it is. But uh, <laughs> did you incorporate 
something along these lines in your marriage proposal because it just sounds like there's just like so much inside joke going inside uh stuff going on there <laughs> the, our marriage the marriage proposal was a, a very interesting and a, a very interesting thing in, in and of itself this this particular thing was was not a part of it um but it, but th- this is an interesting story so this is a sidebar okay cool um, but we actually met the two of us um, at, at new faculty orientation at North Dakota State University. Um, so we came here as as single people. We met. Um, we didn't start dating till much later. Um, well, I say much later, um, February, having met the previous August. Um, we were engaged by late April, I want to say. Okay. So we had a very short courtship. The the marriage proposal was mostly uh so are you gonna marry me or or what you know and yeah, then she was okay. like yeah. she just kind of said okay <laughs> and uh, but uh, the the marriage bargain for us was actually more sports oriented um, her family is a uh, it has a, a history with uh, the Green Bay Packers okay so the official the official football team of our family is the Green Bay Packers and the official baseball team of the family is the St Louis Cardinals all right. Okay, so there's some inside stuff going on there. So that's yep. that's that's interesting. Yeah, no, I I think uh, getting to know getting to know the guest and uh, hearing stories like that that's that's really cool. So, uh, so your your wife uh, led you into the scientific study of happiness, as in introducing that to you because you know through an experience that she realized that economics was not just about studying math and doing research in the way that a lot of people I think. You know, I know it's it's kind of a standard story that if you meet an economist on an airplane, or an economist will tell you that the first thing everybody asks is about what is the, the stock market's going to do, yeah. and they're like, yeah, that's not that's not what we do. We're not an investor <laughs> unless they happen to be both. So, so I, I guess we should just start by like, what is the happiness research, um, or what is the research of well being? I kind of agree that well being is probably a better word. Uh, and I, there's all, there's possibly a, a rabbit trail to go down as to whether or not the the practice of studying it uh, affects whether or not people think of themselves as well off or happy. But uh, just go ahead and tell us what is happiness research. Um, well, that that is just a huge question. There there are multiple multiple angles inside of what I would call happiness research. The very first most principal thing is well, what is happiness? Um, I, I don't really engage in the research on, on what is happiness or what is well-being. Yeah, because it's a subjective kind of thing. I mean, a lot of people would measure happiness differently. It's extremely subjective. When did the research be? Do you know when the research on this sort of started? Like, is it like, what, a decade old, two decades old? It's a fairly new field. So happiness is one of these topics that actually a lot of social sciences have something to do with. It, it actually starts out as, as, as it's a fundamentally philosophical question, especially what is happiness? It's, it's philosophy. Um, so philosophy, they've been studying happiness since, since they started philosophizing. <laughs> yeah, right. But, uh, Psychologists were probably some of the early entrants into more of a scientific approach. There's the field of positive psychology, which may have started in the 70s or 80s, but really started picking up steam in the 90s through the 2000s. 
actually maybe the 80s to 90s, psychologists were the ones who pushed forth most of the measures of happiness that we have. Economists as a social science hasn't, hadn't really started studying happiness very much at all until about the year 2000. The, the exception to that, the, the exception being Richard Easterlin. So Richard Easterlin started studying the economics of happiness um, probably in the, in around the, the 70s. Okay. And he, he became famous for actually what is called the Easterlin Paradox. Um, he realized through the data that he had that there was a difference in how people – report happiness as it relates to income. If you're thinking about it at the individual level, individuals seem to report higher levels of happiness when they have more income. But if you compare countries to one another, um, that often some of the richer countries didn't necessarily um, report average, average higher happiness or higher happiness at the average level rather than at the individual level. Um, so this was for him paradoxical. Um, and that's where a lot of the economics literature kind of jumped in then yeah. is what is this, what is the connection between income and happiness and what are the things that create this paradox? So economists started coming in around the year 2000 with more broad questions than just that connection between um, happiness and, and income and thinking more broadly even about how different institutions influence happiness. Um, things like the rule of law. Um, are people happier when there's, there's strong institutions that give them protection of their property rights, how de democratic is a country and how does that influence um, happiness reports. Um, and then there's, I mean, from there, it's just kind of exploded into a whole field of, of, of economics um, in and of itself. Um, but it's still, in terms of, of parts of the economics literature, at least, it's a very interdisciplinary topic. One can't really study happiness economics without knowing some things from sociology and from psychology and having looked at some of what happens in the philosophy literatures as well. Do you think that's a good thing that this becomes interdisciplinary or are there some dangers because then you have people who it's not their field of expertise uh, to, to kind of study one thing? Uh, that, that like it's their field of expertise to study one thing and then it has to leak into sociology, but they are not good sociologists. So somehow the, I mean, is there a risk there as well? Um, or liability, you know, would be the better so word. there's, <laughs> there's always a risk with any academic research. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. So Yes, but I think there's also a very a very big risk from viewing things singularly from one perspective. Um, the thing is, is we, we happiness is a part of and thinking about happiness to me is a part of thinking about the human condition and what does it mean to be human? You know, what what do humans try to do? Um, and I think being happy is is part of this fundamental this fundamental thing. In that sense, I don't feel like it can be just the realm of one social science. I really think that any approaches have to 
to think about what happens inside of other fields. Now, this becomes to, to be a very difficult thing as an economist. I publish in mostly economics journals, and then it can be sometimes difficult to explain to an economics journal that this research is actually important to them because they look at it and they say, hey, this isn't really economics. Um, so there's there's difficulties of doing interdisciplinary work from the fact of we're all dis- in a discipline. Yeah. But I think sometimes finding the actual truth doesn't come from just one discipline. I think a lot of times for these these it's it's just such a fundamental complex issue. Um, it's not something that I think one particular um, approach is gonna is gonna find everything. Yeah. So when you you said that you know the the study the study of well being is probably a better way to describe this, and that's that definitely aligns with our Christian values of seeking the well being of you know you you know we could kind of platitudinize it and say you know of all society or of our fellow citizens or whatever, but you know at at the end of the day, well being, social, spiritual, physical. All kinds of ways of talking about well-being are very important to the Christian mission and into reaching people with the gospel. And so, when when I hear that economists have contributed to the study of social well-being or of well-being or of happiness, however we want to put it, uh, it I, I get kind of excited because now we have some some relationship between what we think about with politics and public choice theory with respect to what our missions are, our mission is as Christians is to think about the well-being of others. And, and that, of course, that's not all of our mission. Uh, I don't want to like kind of allude to that, but or I don't want to <laughs> mislead there. Uh, so what has the, what has the study of economic freedom and happiness? What's the correlation there? What, what can we learn from that in particular? So uh, all all of your questions I know are just going to be so loaded with so many different things that 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 can be said. Well, that's how um, you can do all the work of answering, yeah, them and hacking them, and I just get to ask the questions. <laughs> that's why I'm on this side of the microphone. Yeah. Um, so I'll I'll kind of take quickly just a, a different aspect and say one of the issues with talking about happiness is definitional. A lot of economists have approached happiness research as thinking about, we, we like to talk about this concept of utility. So when you take economics classes, you spend a lot of time studying the theory of utility and utility maximization. And so a lot of economists think about happiness as measuring this thing that we call utility, which is really something about people's preferences. How do you, how much do you like different things compared to other things? Um, and that's somewhat consistent with what I would call a hedonic viewpoint of happiness and well-being, where we're measuring and just thinking about things from a, a term of pleasure versus pain aspect. I don't think that's a very good way to think about happiness and happiness research in general. I, that's why I, one of the reasons that I like that well-being definition better, I think about it particularly with, with the lens of subjective well-being, where we're really thinking more about an overall assessment of the quality of one's life. And that's inherently subjective. And I, take, I actually take the viewpoint more of, of thinking about happiness in the eudaimonic sense. So... Happiness studies, as I mentioned, has its roots in philosophy. Um, so Aristotle talked a lot about the concept of eudaimonia, 
um, which is hard to translate. Um, but the best translation that, that I have seen people talk about, I should note, I am not a, uh, a, uh, a, lang- a language scholar. So I take these things from other people. Um, but eudaimonia, as I can see it, is best translated as flourishing. So the concept of flourishing. I think that's probably the common accepted, here's the best we got. Yes. And it's, it's the nice thing about, about eudaimonia is that I, I do think that it, it translates well to how we as Christians would probably think about well-being. Mm-hmm. It talks about happiness as, and here I'll quote, an activity in accord with virtue. Mm. So it, it ties well-being specifically to living a virtuous life. It's living the life that you were meant to live. It's being the best you that you can be. That that seems that seems very concordant with an individual way of defining happiness. Yes. And 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 that's where I come back to some of the the research as well. Um it's it's pretty well established that people when you ask them about their happiness level and you ask them how how autonomous are you? So you would you wouldn't ask it maybe in those exact terms, but you you try to measure the autonomy that they have, the control that they have over their own lives. That corresponds very closely with these types of reports of your subjective well-being, um, and that's partly I think because when it comes to virtue and how I think about virtue, is that I can't force somebody to be virtuous. Something is virtuous when you're voluntarily choosing to do the right thing. And I can't be forced to voluntarily do the right thing. So to me, freedom is one of these necessary prerequisites to virtue. And then the virtue, living a virtuous life, um, can then lead to to happiness and well-being. Freedom as in like economic freedom or I mean freedom is in is in anything in the terms of even if if you and I agree that um, we should help the poor mm-hmm. and that helping the poor is a virtue. Right. Part of what I'm saying is that it's virtuous for I myself to to do actions that help the poor. Right. To go serve at the soup kitchen, donate my money, my time to the well-being of others. But if I say, hey, I'm going to take this responsibility that's actually part of my virtuous living and say, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay taxes and have the government do this for me. And actually, I'm going to force other people to pay taxes so that they can also participate in these good things. Okay, so virtue requires the freedom to choose whether or not you are being virtuous. Correct. Okay. It doesn't mean that the thing that we're doing isn't good, but it's not a virtuous act to me, and there will be people who disagree, right? Okay, I just wanted to make sure because the way, the way that you said it was like, I because we, we both know that a person can choose to be virtuous under tyrannical conditions. Correct. Yeah. In the traditional sense of virtue, there's nothing inherently virtuous about the fact that you do pay taxes that do go to benefit somebody who's poor. Because, I mean, I think we both pay taxes and we know that there's a portion of that that goes to benefit people who are in need, but that doesn't make us virtuous. Correct. Right. 
I, I would say that it, it, it's not going to be a virtuous act unless, unless it's truly a voluntary act that I'm not being forced into and that I'm act, I have, I need to be an active participant in that, in that choice and decision. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's not really news. Uh, no. That's not a newsflash here. Of course, we kind of know this. Um, has this way? <laughs> we we need other people to recognize this. So anyway, what what else is the has the research, uh, the economic research, economists' research in this field uh, given us? Sure. So you know, I I've done some research on, especially focusing on economic freedom. Um, economic freedom really gets at the fundamental, actually, of what we're talking about. You and I have have resources. We own property. We own, you know, our fundamental property that we own is ourselves, um, at least from a legal standpoint in the state. You know, different theological view of ownership, <laughs> but in terms of the state, we own ourselves. Um, we own our money. There's a question of how much right do we have to use our resources as we see fit. And economic freedom measures are trying to essentially measure that issue. To what degree do people living under a certain set of institutions have the ability and the right to use their own resources as they see fit? Um, there's been a, num- a, a huge number of studies that l- have looked at economic – I shouldn't say huge. There's been more than, more than just a few studies that look at economic freedom and, and well-being and happiness. Um, the vast majority find that there are positive relationships between economic freedom and, and happiness. Most of these studies are done at the national level, comparing average national happiness from one country to the next and, and likely over time. My own research has been a little bit different in that my research has focused on the United States and it hasn't necessarily just focused on taking averages and comparing average amounts of happiness. It's also looked at the effect of economic freedom on individual reports of happiness. Um, and that's an important distinction because we've, we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the, the, the drawbacks to some happiness research. And it turns out that when we start aggregating happiness, taking this average – that's when a lot of the problems that are associated with this research really pop in the most is thinking about these averages. How do you really take an average of happiness across different people who are thinking about the whole concept of happiness subjectively in different ways? But at an individual level, we can just accept that people are individually and subjectively evaluating their own happiness. But it, my, my research has also supported this case that, that economic freedom – seems to be associated with increased levels of happiness. And actually, through some fancy econometric techniques, we were somewhat able to, to arrive at a, at a causal relationship. Um, but that, that may or may not mean much to anybody else. <laughs> so I, I did have this question when you were talking about the, your, your story of becoming, you know, doing economics and doing lots of math. When, when somebody says fancy econometric techniques, like I don't actually personally know what that looks like. So in my mind, it, <laughs> does, does this look like Goodwill hunting, writing on, you know, clear glass uh, uh, or on chalkboards, you know, discussing with other people who are as smart as you formulas or like when you say you're doing math and calculation, like what is what does this research actually look like? 
Hey folks, if you love listening to our podcast, you may want to check out our monthly webinars. Every month we have a different speaker take a deeper dive into topics relevant to libertarian Christians. If you've missed some of our webinars so far, well, don't worry, you can still download them. Visit our website at libertarianchristians.com slash events. And now let's get back to the show. So fancy econometrics means it's it's statistical methods, but they're you know one of the issues that economists have have thought a lot about is this difference between correlation and causation. Right. Just because two two data points are correlated doesn't really mean that one causes the other. Right. So when I say there's there's fancy math or fancy econometrics, the computer's doing all of the math. Okay. So when you say the computer, I mean every, it's statistics. Every, right. Like it's an app. Well, I say app, application program on a computer that you type in data. Yes. And you get the you data You type from... in data and then you type in code and then the computer executes. Um, yeah. Based upon the data and the code, it gives you um, the output. But it's a question of making sure that you follow the correct um, procedures, make uh-huh. the right calculations for the data. Okay. And people sort of cross-check this. Is this why, like, when people do peer review or other people try to replicate the test, this is when they, like, call foul sometimes? <laughs> the, the, it's, it's what it's all about, yes. Yeah. You, when you publish papers, um, especially um, econometric analyses, there will be a whole host. They want me to prove to them that I have that I have done the correct econometric tests, that things are specified in the correct way. Right. And that's that's all a part of the peer review process. Yeah. OK, because when, when I think like, you know, do the math, I think I don't know if you saw The Office, but like Michael Scott telling his accountant to, you know, <laughs> crunch the numbers again. He's like, it's a it's math on a spreadsheet. He's like, just crunch it. And he just hits return. Yep. Same result. Uh, I don't, I don't know any, I'm not an economist. So, uh, (laughs) doing that kind of level work is kind of interesting. And, you know, I know that a lot of people who, uh, aren't familiar with research, you know, we've, especially conservatives and libertarians have often looked at people who claim that, you know, in 20 years, the sea levels are going to rise. Uh, well, guess what? Who programmed the computers? Humans program the computers. And they're of course going to, you know, be biased in a certain way if they're trying to measure things like climate change or something like that. So how do we know that, how do we know that the the computers you're using aren't biased in favor (laughs) of, you know, (laughs) special, special interests? Sure. I, I'll say that I, I don't engage primarily in, uh, in trying to predict the future. Yeah. And most of my research is not what I would classify as normative, um, I think of myself and in, in, in terms of my economic role as mostly a positivist. I'm interested in how scientifically different variables are related with other variables. Um, so I'm not trying to predict anything about the future. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I got out of macroeconomics, as I described earlier. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, so this uh, that was a little a little rabbit trail and listeners if none of you had those questions thanks for humoring me um, in mind because I've always wondered that about how how research is done in that in that field um, but um, you know one of the things that I thought of when I was when I was kind of preparing for this podcast is the research into happiness how has that how is your thoughts on that or how is your research I should say affected your thoughts on the Apostle Paul's you know, uh, not motto, but like his exhortation to be content with whatever, um, to be content, whether he's, he's learned to be content with whether he's in good conditions or bad conditions. Um, because I would, 
I've heard people say that people in countries who aren't like well off or aren't wealthy in general can be happier or are happier than in, say, the United States. Um, I know most measurements of people in the Nordic countries are that their standard of living is lower, but yet they report a high level of happiness because of a number of factors, you know, and, you know, of course, people are going to try to use that as an advocate for things like universal health care. But is there, I would just ask you, do you that be content whether in good conditions or bad conditions is, has that ever entered your thought as you're studying what people are reporting they're happy about? Okay, so I, I have two two responses to your question. One will be methodological. Mm-hmm. Um, the second will be more theological. So hopefully I'll be able to keep these two separate um, in my answer to you. Um, so back in terms of methodology, one of the real fundamental issues is making comparisons from one person to another. So how happy are you today, Doug? Um, let's, let's rank this on a scale of one to 10. How happy are you? How happy am I today? I would say on a scale from one to 10, I'm an eight. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I can take that same question and go ask somebody in another country using my best translation of those words and a scale, ask them the same question and they could think of something completely different. So one of the issues that pops up in the happiness literature is the fact that so much of this is cultural, has a cultural context. And I might be able to have a good idea of your happiness. And even if I, if I have data on your happiness over time, you probably have a fairly consistent view of what it means to be happy. Right. Um, And I might get some meaning from those repeated asking of you, of your happiness. But that doesn't mean that I can compare you and your ranking to somebody in a completely different culture, in a completely different context, with a, actually a completely different question even, because you don't speak the same language. Mm-hmm. All of these things, even down to what, what's the weather that day, can affect your, your answer. So it's, it's really difficult for me to use that argument of, well, people in poorer countries report higher levels of happiness um, than people right. in, in some sort of trying to, to justify that, you know, some, some type of thing like you were suggesting earlier. There are some other issues that we could go down that are, that are rabbit holes that we probably don't want to. Sure. Yeah. But overall, the methodology is that just like you and I might report an eight today, like maybe we're, maybe we're both equally happy today at an eight, but in your mind, an eight is like a really good day for you maybe. And an eight for me, because maybe I'm always a nine and a half in my mind. And so I feel slightly depressed yet you feel exuberant and yet somehow eight means equal. Is it that sort of problem? Like on an individual level? That's part of it. There's also this issue of it's come to be, pretty widely accepted that most people have kind of a set point level of happiness. Yeah. And in fact, a lot, a lot of your happiness empirically um, is determined by a whole host of factors that might not be under your control. So we could, we could go into things like personality measures. Yeah, right. Your personality influences at least how you report happiness. No kidding. But it's, it's also been shown that people have a baseline of happiness and they'll report that consistently, but then they, maybe something happens bad to you today well, you would report something lower, but you're likely to get back. There's this issue of adaptation. Over mm-hmm. time, people adapt to very adverse situations right. and end up reporting a high level of happiness. Yeah. 
So what's the theological answer to the contentedness? So I think that your reference here is in particular in Philippians 4, um, probably mostly focusing on on verse 11. Yeah, right. You know, I, for one thing, I hate reading just one verse, but we don't have to necessarily read the verse out loud so people can go back and look at it. But I would, I'd also pop down to verse 13, which is a few verses later, where he starts off with this phrase, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so I guess... You know, my, my, my theological answer to this question is partly just to think about what do we mean by content? And I don't think that Paul was content in the sense that he didn't do anything. I don't think that anybody would consider Paul to be somebody who was stagnant and lacked action, right? Right. Pursuing betterment doesn't, doesn't or if you're content, doesn't mean you don't pursue betterment in some measure. Right. I think, and I, I mean, we have the whole book of Acts, right? Which is about the, the creation of the, of the church and it's called the book of Acts, right? It's about, it's about actions. Um, so, you know, and actually this is kind of maybe not completely a theological answer. As an economist, I often think about, about entrepreneurship and the role of entrepreneurship. And I, I view entrepreneurship as, as fundamentally about two things. Um, entrepreneurial vision, that is noticing a problem and potential solution, and entrepreneurial action, that is taken at, taking action in pursuit of the vision. But I don't, I think a lot of people think about entrepreneurship just in terms of starting new businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for instance, I think of myself as an academic entrepreneur. I think of Paul, and I know that some people listening to me say this are going to hate that I'm saying this, but I think of Paul as a religious entrepreneur. You know, he traveled all over the Roman Empire, starting churches and establishing communities of believers everywhere that he went. Yeah. So he does speak of contentment, but the contentment that he's talking about doesn't prevent him pursuing the vision that God gave him. Yeah, right. And I think that's one of the things that 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 I don't like kind of of that use of this verse in saying you're content. You should just sit there and be happy with the way things are. Um, and I don't think that that I don't think that that could possibly be a good interpretation of what Paul has to be saying here. Um, I really think in the context of the Philippians in particular, you know, he's actually in prison and he's really writing this letter to thank the church of Philippi um, for having such a, conter- a concern yeah. for him. Um, yeah. and, and he's then exhorting them for, for thank you. Thank you for being so concerned about me. But hey, by the way, I don't really need anything from you right now. So I think that's really what he's saying. I'm content. I know where my happiness and my, my joy comes from. Yeah. And I have what I need and you don't need to send anything to me. Yeah, there's like a centeredness to where, where he finds contentment rather than rather than uh, finding it in, in something yep. that rather than pursuing the latest thing or pursuing the next thing that has to happen. That's good. So I want to shift the conversation to the other topic we want to talk about, which is social capital. Uh, and <clears throat> the first time I heard this word was from President George W. Bush in 2004. After the his elect after his reelection in two thousand and four, he said that he built up a lot of social capital and he plans to spend it. Do you do you remember that? <laughs> 
so I know, I know, I know the common conception that you're referring to. I don't, I don't remember the exact phrase that you're referring to. Yeah. Well, I actually kind of fell prey to this was before I became a libertarian. I mean, I've always been in favor of like more economic freedom and less government uh, interaction. And so, you know, growing up, I was, I, I kind of grew, I grew up in a Republican family. They weren't like diehard Republicans, but we always believed that the Republican Party was about few, le, you know, less government, right? right. Um, and that's kind of was my assumption. Then I realized that wasn't it. And I realized I was really a libertarian, etc. But during that time, I was this is 2004. It was a long time ago. Uh, before I became a libertarian, I don't know why I have to like segue it that way. But anyway, <laughs> um, I was a fan of George W. Bush back then. Okay. And I did not want John Kerry to become president. And so George W. Bush gets, I remember the next morning, you know, watching Fox news and, you know, George, Doug, George W. Bush wins a reelection. And he says this phrase and I'm like, Oh yeah, he, he won the election by more than he won the last election, which isn't saying much in that case, but he, he won the election. You know, it was very clear. The people spoke and I'm going to spend that capital, which in his mind meant, I think I get to do what I want for four years because I have this huge backing behind me. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, uh, very similar to the kind of social capital that you study, but that was the first time I heard the concept of social capital because he literally wasn't spending money, but he was spending something called capital that wasn't in financial terms. So, uh, what is what is social capital? I mean, did he did he use that correctly? Uh, not, no. not saying did he spend. I don't mean did he spend it correctly. Did he use the term correctly, or is that is that just a one of multiple terms? He used it in a very common way, um, not the way that most of the the researchers that study social capital would refer to it. So I think what he meant when he talked about social capital was that I I have a lot of people who owe me some political favors. Um, and I'm going to call in this political favoritism that I've earned Mm. and I'm going to say, Hey, look, I supported you back in the day or whatever. And now I expect you to do this in support of me. So I think it was really a a statement about political exchange. Yeah. My quid pro pro quo has come due. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the feel that it has. Um, there is an aspect that I think that he's referring to that is perhaps somewhat consistent in that in some way he could be saying, look, I've worked hard. I've, I've, hey, I think he did say that. <laughs> Works weekends, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that he, he built up a social network, a network of people that, that support him. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, he's probably using social capital to really reference this this network of people of supporters and that's kind of related to how i think i would at least think about social capital but also different okay um so what is it that you study yeah tell us what you study well social capital kind of like happiness is is it's it's hard to define really hard to define um there's so i can i can talk a little bit about a couple of the prevailing definitions. Um, Robert Putnam is one of the authors that that probably brought social capital as a concept into modern literature and modern modern thinking. He would say the central premise of social capital is that social networks have value. So social capital refers to the collective value of all social networks. Social networks defined broadly, not like what Very we think broad. of as in media. But it, but it's also he's defining something that really couldn't just be I have social capital. It's really a we have social capital. 
Um, so there's a there's a there's one of the issues between so, about social capital is we have to think about what's the unit of measurement. Can one person really possess social capital, or is social capital something that a community together has? And it, this this word capital itself is actually a bit dicey. Um, economists have specific meaning to what capital is. We usually think of capital as being like the stock of machines that we use combining with labor that produce output. So social capital as an economic concept is thinking about, and, and we could actually conversely, com we could compare it to this concept of human capital. Well, people have knowledge and resources, and that knowledge can be combined with labor and machines to produce stuff. So the more human capital you have, the more productive you will be. Well, social capital then puts in this social aspect, but we still can economists would still often tie it back to thinking about productivity. In fact, Francis Fukuyama is, a, is another scholar. And actually, I like his way of thinking about social capital better. So he, he basically talks about social capital as informal norms that promote cooperation between two or more individuals. And that's really where my thinking about social capital is, is that it really is the norms of reciprocity that make cooperation, and that's cooperation amongst individuals, it makes that cooperation possible. So I, you know, long ago in our conversation, we talked a bit about the prisoner's dilemma and this fundamental issue of, well, how can these people cooperate in this situation where their incentives don't seem to be aligned? Well, I would say that social capital, these norms of reciprocity, are part of what can help people to solve those types of problems. It can help us cooperate in situations where it seems like maybe we wouldn't be able to get to cooperation. A lot of economists, in particular those in the public choice tradition, will talk about the problem of collective action. Social capital is one of the fundamental ways, the things that can help us overcome the problems of collective action, to organize a group together to solve some type of a collective goal. So what, do, what does social capital look like? Do you have an example of somebody or some group that has developed it? So... You know, I think I think that and this is one of the things that it's 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 social capital is a fuzzy thing. One of the ways that we kind of might measure it is by thinking about, as you're suggesting, what are the types of things that produce maybe certain types of of things that we can view that appear to be like social capital. And that would be voluntary associations. Are you a person in, and actually a lot of the measures of social capital will even ask people, how often do you go to church? Being a part of a church and a part of a com church community is thought to be a contributor to social capital. As a lot of these um, empirical aspects to social capital might be, how engaged are you? Do you, do you vote? Do you contribute to issues at a local level? Um, it's really about this, this idea of are you connected as a person or are you isolated um, as a hermit? So you contribute to the social capital to the extent that you are connected to other people and that you establish these, we call them norms of reciprocity. So there's a question, say, say my child gets sick. You know, I live in Fargo, which is nowhere near my family. Um, I can't call my mom and say, hey, can you come over and watch my sick kid for me? There's a question of, is there somebody in, 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 
here that I trust enough that I would be able to, to ask them to come help me out. Um, so one of the ways that we empirically measure social capital, and in fact, there would be some people who would say this is the only way we should measure it, is by thinking about the issue of social trust. How much trust do you have in the average person that you come across with um, on a day-to-day -day basis where you live? If you can say that you, you, on average, trust other people quite a bit, that's indicative that there's probably a lot of social capital there. But if you don't trust people, if you think that everybody's out to get you, everybody's there to, to take rather than to give, then that's not indicative of social capital. Do you think libertarians do are good are good at building social capital? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think I think both yes and no. Yeah, the, the safe answer is some are better than others. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about social capital again is that it's really about establishing voluntary associate associations. Yeah. Um, to me, the concept of social capital is is very closely connected to the overall idea of civil society. Um, we could even link back to Alexei de Tocqueville and and his description of of civil society in the United States. But it's it's primarily about finding voluntary solutions to what maybe we would define as collective problems. You know, but I focus on the, the voluntary aspect. To the extent that we're thinking about voluntary solutions, of course, that's extremely libertarian. Right, right. But to the extent that we start saying, hey, let's, let's go make it a rule that everybody has to contribute tax dollars <laughs> to do this thing, it's no longer voluntary um, yeah. and isn't necessarily part of social capital then. Well, it's, yeah, I, th I guess I meant like libertarianism as a movement. Yeah, and – you know, that's probably well. My my understanding would be that libertarianism, libertarianism as a movement, is all about voluntarism. Mm -hmm. yeah. So to me, maybe we're not good at it because we we are very focused on our individuals and our individual rights. Um, but the liber libertarianism wouldn't exist if we didn't voluntarily associate with one right. another in some form or fashion. Yeah, you can't force somebody to be libertarian. I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the, the reasons that I, that I got into some of the happiness research and social capital research um, somewhat simultaneously is that the, the two were quite related. I talked about the, the research that I did on trying to connect economic freedom to happiness, and there seems to be a pretty, pretty good connection there. There's also a, a literature on the connection between economic freedom and social capital. Um, this is a very a smaller literature. Um, but but there appears to be also a positive correlation between economic freedom and and the development of of social capital. Um, and at least we know that this relationship doesn't appear to be a negative one. And that's important, partly because one of the things that I described um, um, as we were having some discussions about the nature of happiness research is that people tend to adapt. When we think about happiness over time, happiness for most people is fairly constant. Something good might happen. You would get a raise, for instance. Maybe you get a huge raise. Maybe you even win the lottery. Um, your happiness, especially if I ask you the day that you 
that you won the lottery, you're going to report huge happiness. But over time, that increase, that bump that you got is going to disappear. In fact, for some people, it seems that you track them a couple years later, their happiness might even be less. Um, but there's this idea of adaption, adaptation. People adapt to both really good things that have happened to them and really bad things. So if we want to think about a world in which we should, you know, we want to promote in some way maybe people being or having well-being, I want to use happiness and well-being somewhat synonymously, we want to think about things that influence people's happiness that are enduring and won't be subject to adaptation. It turns out that social capital is one of these things. When there's more social capital, happiness is higher, and that those happiness levels stay higher over long periods of time. So promoting things that, that can create social capital um, can actually lead to higher happiness over the long run. Of course, I just opened the door for uh, lots of questions about how does one create social capital. Yeah, and that's, right. probably, <laughs> that's probably a whole other podcast in and of itself with, with basically no answer. <laughs> with me, so we just explore and talk about how fuzzy the answers are and how it's you know challenging research and all of that. So there you go. There's that second podcast on this topic. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We are we are limited on time here and we could we could go on forever or just like start recording a new episode or whatever, but um I think connecting these two uh is a good way to to kind of end on this. So, we'll leave it at that. Um how how can people reach you if they want to reach out to you or read some of your some of the papers that you've written? Yeah, I I have an email address. So my email address is jeremy.jackson at ndsu.edu. The, uh, the center that I direct, um, the Center for the Study of Public Choice and Private Enterprise also has a website um, where we, we post blogs. Many of those blogs have been written by myself, but also um, it connects you to some of the other things that the center does, and my bio is there. That website is www.ndsu.edu backslash centers backslash PCPE. All right. I'll put that on the uh, show notes page on our website as well. Jeremy, thanks for joining us and uh, giving us your background story and how you got into economics and how you became uh, interested in these topics of happiness and social capital. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Music